Well, you can turn to, or type to, or swipe to, or scroll to, or however you get to Galatians chapter 1. Now, Galatians, welcome if you're new. It's a very, very small book of the Bible. We're, take, we're saying it takes 15 to 20 minutes to read it. It's 149 verses, but we're going to spend three or four months in this book. And when you open up to the book of Galatians, a stick of dynamite may fall out of your Bible, okay? Because this is an explosive book. It has changed lives. It has changed legacies. It has changed history. And so, I, it, like I told you last week, it's a little overwhelming to preach it because of how significant this book is. In fact, I want to go back with you, and I want to look at the first two verses. Again, the very beginning of this, here's what it says. It says, verse 1, Paul, and we're not going to talk a lot about him this week, but we are going to talk all about him next week. Um, one of the things you'll learn, if you read your Bible, if you read your New Testament, you're going to get to know and love the Apostle Paul. He is very vulnerable. He is very authentic. He is very honest. He opens up not only uh, the Bible, he opens up his life. And we'll see more of his story next week. Here's what he says. He says, Paul, I'm an apostle. I'm not from man nor through man. We'll look at this more next week. Basically, what he's saying is Christianity is not a religion and it's not a tradition. It's something completely different. It's not from man. It's not through man. It's not uh, passed down from man. And then he says this, but through Jesus Christ. Paul can't even talk for one sentence without talking about Jesus. Uh, And then he says this, and God the Father who raised him from the dead, that's the heart of the gospel, that Jesus Christ lived the life that you cannot live, died the death that you deserve to die, and rose from the dead victorious over Satan, sin, and death. Now, that's the message that Paul introduces in the first verse, and then we're going to spend the rest of the five or six chapters looking through what the gospel is. And here's what Paul says, And all of the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Now, here's what I want you to understand, and this is going to help you understand this whole book. Paul writes it to a bunch of churches in Galatia. Now, what Paul would do is he would go to an area, and he would found a church, and he would plant that church, and he would pastor that church, and then he would pass that church on to leadership, and then he would leave, and then he would write letters to continue to minister to that church. And here's one of the things we see, that the gospel creates the church. This is such an important idea. Because the most powerful thing that we have is the message of the gospel, and whenever, wherever we take that message, it doesn't matter if it's Alabama, Arkansas, Afghanistan, okay, whether it's California or Kansas, or whether it's the college campus or, or the co-working space or the carpool line, it doesn't really matter. Wherever the gospel goes, it creates the church. Because as you share the amazing message of the gospel, people are born again. Sins can be forgiven. People can repent and believe, and that's how the entire church is established. And so Paul writes this, and then it says, look at this, this is really interesting, in verse 2, if you just look at the end, this is why every word's important, it says the churches of Galatia. Now Paul only planted one church. But what we know is that these churches began to multiply. That what we see is that the church, we want to make disciples, okay, but we also want to multiply disciples, and multiply leaders, and multiply groups, and multiply churches. And, and I want to just tell you this, we are and we will continue to be, by the grace of God, a church planting church. We have, in three and a half years, helped to plant five churches, and we're only getting started. We are dead serious about planting churches. Part of the way that we're going to continue to open up more of these seats is that some of you are going to leave, and you are going to help us plant more and more churches. I'll tell you, one of the most amazing things, if you're not familiar with the Summit Church in Raleigh-Durham, it is just the most incredible church. I came from there. I spent a lot of time there. And one of the things that was so interesting, our launch team, about 30 people, moved from Raleigh-Durham. They sold houses. They uprooted kids from school. They worked on their CV and figured out how they were going to re-interview for jobs. And we had 30 people, and they said, we're going to move to Winston-Salem, not because Winston-Salem's any better than Raleigh-Durham, but because we want to reach this city, we want to help plant this church. And I remember talking to these people. They're still part of our church. And I remember hearing their stories, and and, and, and two or three of them said this to me. I remember a married couple with young kids. They said, you know, we knew we were always going to be part of a church plant because we were at the summit. 
We just knew, being in a church like that, we're probably not going to be there forever. We were just waiting for the right opportunity, the right place, the right timing, the right season of our life to go and be with a church plant. And that's the hope. We, we hope that for that to be the culture in our church as well, that people are asking the question, all right, Lord, I want to put my yes on the map and let you put it anywhere. And so that's the context that Paul is now writing to these churches. Now, I want you to look with me at verse 6, because we, we talked about verses 3, 4, and 5 last week. In verse 6, Paul gets very serious. And this is the only letter that Paul writes. He's written 13. This is the only letter that Paul writes that there is no praise. Uh, he doesn't say anything nice about them. There is nothing positive said. This is the only letter where Paul doesn't even pray for them. He's like, I ain't even praying for you yet, okay? <laughs> he gets right to business. And listen, sometimes, you know, there's nothing good to say about somebody, right? You've got to, there's, there's too, it's too urgent what you need to talk about. You can't butter them up. You have to get right to the point. And Paul's going to say some very hard words. And this is what we believe here at Two Cities. We, we believe that hard words make soft people and soft words make hard people. And some of you, the reason that your marriage is in the exact same place and you're still addicted and you're still lazy and you're still making excuses and your career hasn't taken off and your finances are a mess is because nobody has ever said anything hard to you ever. And if you've ever had somebody call you up and call you out, there's a, you're very scared and you say thank God at the same time. Because somebody called you out of hiding and they called you up to something, and at first it was embarrassing because you realized where you were and how much you messed up and how far you have to go. But in these five verses that we're looking at today, Paul is going to call up and to call out the Galatian church. And so I want us to look at this. This is verses six through 10. I'm gonna read it in its entirety, and then we're gonna spend the rest of this evening, our time left, looking at these verses. Here's what it says. I am astonished. Paul is angry and astonished. He is shocked, saddened, and sorrowed. Here's what it says. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him. You're ultimately not deserting a belief system. You're deserting a person because Christianity is not primarily and fundamentally a religion. It's primarily and fundamentally a relationship. So he says, you're, not, you're so quickly deserting him who called you. We'll talk more about that next week. In the grace of Christ and you are turning. That's the opposite of repentance. Repentance is I turn toward Christ. This is I'm turning away from Christ. That's sin. He says, and you're turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one. Everything's going to be a counterfeit. There's not really another gospel. But there are some, we'll talk about them today, who trouble you and they want to distort the gospel, literally pervert it. They want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, he's going to say this again. And by the way, this is the hardest thing Paul says in any of his letters. Let him be accursed. Let him be condemned. Verse 10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want us to look at this and, and learn some more things about the gospel. The first thing I want us to see is that people need the gospel. It's, it's assumed in this text, but this is what, what makes the Bible so strange to us is that people like Paul actually cared about people's spiritual needs. Like, you know, today, we, you know, it's very easy to care about people's felt needs, and they're important. You know, and people have a lot of felt needs. People have endless amounts of felt needs. 
But to really care about people's spiritual needs and to care about their souls and to realize that is what is most important. And so what I want us to look at is I want us to see how Paul did this. You know, Paul is going to again and again and again remind them of the gospel. It reminds me, of, I, I'm going to talk a lot in the series about Martin Luther because Martin Luther was one of the great interpreters of the book of Galatians, one of the early interpreters of it. And what he said is uh, early on, he'd be preaching the gospel to his church every week. And, uh, and eventually his church said, why are you preaching the gospel to us every week when we come in here? It's, I mean, it's a different message, but you're preaching the gospel to us every week. And he said, well, because every week you come in here looking like people who don't believe the gospel. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that such a great response? He goes, every week you come in here and you look like a bunch of people who don't believe the gospel. And so what I want to do is I want to remind you of what is most important, the true gospel. Now, here's what Paul's going to do throughout the rest of his letter. He's not going to spend a lot of time talking about all the false, false gospels. We'll do some of that today. He's going to spend more time talking about what is the true gospel. It's the same thing that they do at the Federal Reserve. They don't, they don't um, show you every type of counterfeit money ever. Like, well, here, you know, there's, I mean, how many different types of counterfeits are there of a $100 bill? Countless. So how do you prepare for all of the fake $100 bills? You study the real thing for a very long time, and then you're ready for it. And so Paul's going to take this gospel message that Christ died for you, that Christ rose, that repentance and faith and new life and forgiveness and freedom are found in his name. He's going to take this gospel and he's going to bring it to him. And look at what he does in verses six and seven. He defends the gospel message. See, the gospel doesn't only need to be declared. It certainly does. It also needs to be defended. It doesn't only need to be preached. It needs to be protected. And the reason I, t I say this is I want you to understand because there's some things that churches do that churches have always done, but Nowadays, people go, well, why do you do that? Like, for example, why do you have a confession of faith? And if you go on our website, we have a confession of faith, which basically says everything that we believe as a church is listed on our website so you can go and read it. Well, why do we do that? Well, the main reason that you do that is that it's the way that you protect the church. And you go, this is what we believe. And you would not want to be a part of our church, a member of our church, if you did not believe the exact same things that we do in these areas. And so the first thing I want you to see, and we'll talk more about this in the weeks to come, that Paul sees that every person needs the gospel. Here's the second thing I want you to see. People will desert the gospel. People will desert the gospel. Look at me again at verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and you are turning to a different gospel. I don't know your experience being a Christian, those of you who are Christians, and if you've if you have any stories of people that you know that at one point in time, you know, I don't know, they were high school, they were college, you were in church with them, you were in community group with them, you were in small group with them, you were at student ministry, you were in college ministry, I don't know, they, they said they followed Christ and now they don't, they've rejected Christ now. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. You know, being 15 years in ministry, I've actually seen people, sadly enough, who were on staff in ministries who raised their support for a living which means they went to people and said, would you support my ministry? And they raised their own salaries. And then they went on the college campus and they shared Christ. And now they don't follow Christ anymore. I have friends like that. I have one guy, I can't, won't say his name out loud, but one morning his roommate went to breakfast at IHOP and came back and this guy was gone. I mean, gone, gone. And, and uh, phone's gone. Phones, we can't, they can't call him. Um, what we find out, I can't get into the whole story, but what we find out is that he had been looking at pornography for so long. And he eventually said, which is what all of us will say if we don't repent of sin and continue to try to manage it, I can't live this double life. It's, it's stressing me out. It's overwhelming me. I'm tired of, he actually said this later, I'm tired of lying and I'm tired of hiding. 
And so he actually just left. He didn't tell his mom. His mom was so upset, his mom couldn't get out of bed for five days. It's a long story for how we eventually found him. He didn't want to be found. What we found out is that he had moved to Asheville, North Carolina, to give in to all of the sexual perversions that he was desiring to give in to. And it was so deviant what he was into that the two men who went and got him had to go to counseling afterwards just going to the house where he was. Now, I know that's an extreme example, but what it shows us is that people who say they follow Christ, they will, not everybody, actually most won't, thank God, but people will leave the gospel. Now, why do they do it? They, it says they turn away from it to something better. Well, they think it's something better, I mean. And, and I can tell you, I mean, we, you know, I know everybody's unique and we all have our own experiences and everything, but really, we're, we're very much the same, too. I can tell you mostly why people turn away from the gospel. Um, one, one reason they do is a romantic relationship. That happens all the time. You know, it's usually some excuse like, you know, well, you know, he's really funny and he makes a lot of money and he treats me nice and he tolerates church occasionally. You know, which turns into I marry him and, I'm, and we have a kid and now I'm, now I'm bitter and resentful at him because he's not a spiritual leader in the house, but the reason he's not a spiritual leader is because he's not a Christian and I didn't marry a Christian. And so now I functionally, I feel like a single mom, try, even though I'm married, trying to raise my kids in the church when half my home believes something completely differently. So that, that people leave for romantic relationships. Uh, people, I said this in the example, but people leave because um, there's sin in their life that they love more than Christ, that they've been trying to manage, they haven't been confessed it, they haven't put it to death, they haven't said no to it. And, the, it, and that's what burnout and blow up is. Burnout and blow up is my private life and my public life are so different across time, I can't handle it anymore. And so I'm just either gonna, you know, I, I got a buddy, he said this, he said that, Whenever somebody tells him, who's a Christian, whenever somebody tells him that they're starting to, they've got a lot of theological questions and theological problems with the Bible, he says, the first question I always ask them is, who are you sleeping with? And he said, what most people, not, and, I, and I'm not pushing away that people have real theological questions, but he said, most theological problems are pants problems. And most, because it's, it's a lot easier to go, I'm struggling with Darwinian evolution and Christianity, and I, I'm really dealing with the resurrection of Christ versus I just want to get drunk and sleep around, and, and I'm tired of the restraints I feel in my life. Uh, another reason that people, do, that people leave the faith is they've been hurt. You know, and in a city like ours, I'm not thinking of any one person or one situation, but in a city like ours, and this would be true of many small to mid-sized religious cities in the Bible Belt with many churches, there's 516 churches in Winston-Salem. And so people are hurt. I had someone come up to me after the nine o'clock service and said, that's me, I've been out of church for seven years. He was from a different city, but he was just telling me, Here's what, and he didn't really get into it. He said, some things happened with my family and I had just left the church. And people confuse the church with Christ. The church is the bride of Christ, but it's not Christ. And so we're, we're told that people will desert the gospel. Here's the, here's the next one. People will also distort the gospel. People will distort the gospel. If you look back at verse seven, it says this. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, here's what was happening. Let me, I haven't given enough of the context that was actually going on in Galatia. Because we don't, and by the way, it's always hard to know the exact context. Because when you read a letter from Paul, it's like walking in on somebody who's having a conversation on the phone and you only hear one side of it. That's what it's like to read the epistles. It's like, well, to the best that we can, we'll try to understand what's going on based on 
one part of the conversation, but what seems to be happening here and what we have from cultural context and history is that there were these people that were called the Judaizers. And they came in and they did two things. And this is, by the way, what every false teacher does. They attack the authority of Paul. So what, what, do, what do false teachers to do, do today? They attack the authority of the scriptures. And then the second thing is they try to distort, they try to change, they try to revise, um, they try to add to or subtract from the message of the Bible. And so that's the second. And in this case, here's what they said. They said, okay, it's, you, it's believing in Jesus plus getting circumcised. Now, when we hear that, we go, how silly, right? But all false gospels look silly until we believe them. All of the false gospels that we don't believe, they look very silly, but if we believe them, it's like, no, that's a real gospel. And if, and if you're like, all right, what is circumcision? Pastor Dave and Pastor Caleb are eager and excited and prepared to talk to you guys about that after the service. If you have any questions about circumcision. So, um, but, but it, it was, let me just say this, it was a religious tradition that they did in the past. Does this sound familiar? It's a religious tradition that they did in the past that it's like, yeah, okay, trust Jesus, but still do this religious tradition from the past. And so what they do, and this is what, this is what um, all false gospels try to mess with the two parts of, of the gospel that you can never touch. Let me just tell you what they are. The first part of the gospel that you can never touch is our complete inability to add anything to our salvation. Our complete inability that we are too sinful to do anything about our current spiritual state. It's a rescue religion, not an escape religion, right? We're rescued, we don't escape. Escapes, like if you see Harry Houdini and you see all like the great escape things, it's like what's the, whenever somebody escapes, who's it about? The person who escaped. Uh, we, we've been rescued. And the second part of the gospel that we can, can never tamper or touch is the idea that we are, we are saved by belief in what Jesus Christ has done for us alone. Those are the two elements. We're too sinful to add anything to it ourselves, and we are saved by believing on Jesus Christ, his person, and his work alone. Well, they want to add to that, or they want to subtract to it. And, and what I want to do with some of the time we have left is I want to tell you about what I believe the false gospels are in the church and in the culture today, which is the next point, which is people will believe different gospels. People will believe different gospels. And, and let me tell you how this works. I'm going to pick on the church first, right? Because it's always good to pick on yourselves first before you talk about anybody else. I'm going to talk about how we do this in the church and then how we do this in the culture. Um, and, and here's how it works in the church. It's some version of this. And it's helpful to articulate these things because then you kind of see how silly they are once you say them out loud. Um, but what we do in the church is we basically say, we can act this way when we believe false gospels. There are JV Christians and there are varsity Christians. And you're really a JV Christian. You're not really on the varsity squad team unless you, do, unless you trust in Jesus plus. And let me give you some of them, right? Because trust in Jesus plus circumcision, like, oh, that's so silly. But we would say today, a lot of places, I mean, they wouldn't necessarily say this out loud, but functionally they'd say Jesus plus baptism. Now, look, we believe baptism is incredibly important. It's the outward sign of an inward reality. It's how you uh, publicly identify with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself was baptized as an adult. Paul was baptized as soon as he's converted. Every person in the New Testament who believes is immediately baptized, except for the thief on the cross, right? And so what we believe is baptism is, and it's an important part of what it means to follow Christ, but baptism does not save us. It's not like, well, you know, Jesus doesn't like dry people. He only likes wet people, okay? It's kind of silly when you think about it that way, you know? But, but that, that's how people act sometimes. And so, and, and let me say this too. What happens with false gospels is we confuse the root of the gospel with the fruit of the gospel. 
The root of the gospel is, is belief and trust and, tr- and reliance on Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And the fruit of the gospel might be, well, a dozen different things or hundreds of different things. It might be getting baptized in your life. Well, I'll give you a couple other ones. Jesus plus homeschooling your kids. Right? And all the people who are homeschooling their kids go, that's not funny. That's not funny. <laughs> Just kidding. We love you. Um, but... But, you know, and, and, and I deeply respect people who homeschool and people who do private school and people who do charter school and people who do university model and people who do public school but want to be deeply invested and involved in their kids. I mean, I, we respect all of it. But, but what happens oftentimes is usually because people have, you know, deep convictions. I mean, you have to have a deep conviction to do, well, maybe any of those, but especially homeschooling maybe. And so some people think, well, you know, if you really understood how to care for your kids and pass on the gospel, then you would homeschool, right? And then a whole other group of people goes, and if you really understood how your kids would be socially acceptable, you know, and have good social skills, you'd send them to public school, right? And I'm just kidding, but those are the kind of conversations that people have or don't have. Um, okay, so Jesus plus spiritual disciplines. I, I actually, you know, I, I was born again, and I've told you my story in high school, and, but as soon as I got to college, I was a part of a great college ministry. But, it, but I, I mean, fun, not, they didn't really believe this, but functionally it felt like sometimes it's Jesus plus really good job with the spiritual disciplines that saves you. And the more scripture you memorize, and the more prayers you pray, and the more, you know, uh, Bible you read, and, and the more evangelism that you do, you know, the more holy that you are. And by the way, the problem with all the Jesus plus things are is it either leads you to pride or despair. Pride, I'm doing really good this week, or this morning, or this hour, or this day, or despair, I'm so terrible. Whereas if it's about trusting what Christ has done, then you'll, you'll avoid the pitfalls of pride and despair, because that doesn't change. Therefore, you know, you... Um, your worst days and your best days, you're still relying on the grace of God. So now if you're in the charismatic, which this isn't really our team, tribe, or tradition, but the charismatic movement, it's Jesus plus speaking in tongues. The sign of tongues moves you from JV to varsity. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, functionally, that's how that works. For some people, it's Jesus plus perfect theology in every area, especially in regards to the end times. I mean, and and there's just so many different ways. It's Jesus plus very, very strong faith. It's like, well, actually, it's about not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith. And so that's the first one, Jesus, Jesus plus something. Let me give you the other ones more quickly. Um, the prosperity gospel. Now, there's soft prosperity and there's hard prosperity. What happens with the prosperity gospel, all the, gospel, all the false gospels, this is what makes them powerful, right? They have half of a truth in them. So what the prosperity gospel does, it takes verses about you prospering and God's favor and the blessing of God and the holistic nature of it, um, and it overly applies them just to the physical, temporal um, moments of today. And so now in our church, we wouldn't be tempted more to believe the hard prosperity gospel, but we're tempted to believe more of the soft prosperity gospel. Now, the soft prosperity gospel is something like this. You're, you're not going to get cancer. Cancer doesn't happen to people like you. You know, in fact, here's how you know that you're believing a soft prosperity gospel if you're ever surprised by suffering in your life. But if suffering comes to you, and I'm not saying you're glad for it, but you're like, okay, I, I live in a, I'm, I'm a sinner. I live around sinners. I live in a sinful world. This isn't my home. The world's broken and fallen. I shouldn't be surprised by sinning, by, by suffering. Here's another one. Um, the poverty gospel, or what's called the radical gospel. And this was more popular with millennials and Gen Xers and with people who love to, to read and listen to Francis Chan and David Platt which are both great guys. I look up to them. They're strong Christian pastors. Uh, what happens is people read their books and they think it's Jesus plus downsizing your home. If you, were, if you really were born again, you would, you would Jesus plus no leather interior. Jesus plus foster care and international adoption. 
And I'm serious, and I've seen people, and they get, they get overwhelmed. They read the books, and they feel like, oh, I'm not even a Christian. I, gotta, I was talking to somebody, you know, because this is my third time I've done this, so <laughs> I was talking to somebody about this after the, the, thir- the second service today, and they were talking about how guilty they felt. After reading the book Radical, I'm not, I'm not picking on it. D- David Platt himself has said he believes that it had some implications and applications he didn't want it to have. Well, people read it, and they think, I'm not even a Christian anymore. And if I don't do something radical, if I don't move my life, and if I don't go, and if I don't do a well you know, in Africa for somebody, and if I'm not on the mission field, then, then I'm not you know, fully following Christ. Here's another one, the permissive grace gospel. The permissive grace gospel. Uh, basically, it's, this is easily believed in many churches today. Basically, the grace of God allows me to just keep living and doing whatever I want to do. I'm saved, and now I can look at whatever I want to look at, or I don't know. I don't really have to worry about you know, repenting of sin or you know, getting my life together, uh, you know, it kind of, it, it's, it, I heard one pastor say he was sharing the gospel on, on, on a plane with, with somebody, and the person said to him, I'm not worried about God forgiving me, it's his job. Which, I mean, maybe that person is just more honest than how most of us are, but that's kind of his mind, well, that's God's job. Or I remember one of my buddies in high school, he was trying to, we were trying to talk to his dad about Christ, and we started to share the gospel with him, and he said, stop, don't tell me God loves me, I know God loves me. What he said, I mean, it was just this whole, like, I assume, I presume that God loves me and that I'm okay. Right, here's another false gospel, the false gospel of the social gospel or the activist gospel. And, and basically what, what it misunderstands is that the main role and responsibility of the church is to preach the good news of the gospel with good words, to call people to repentance and faith. That that's the main thing, that alongside that, we meet people's needs in Jesus' name. But often, what most of the mainline churches they only believe that the, view, that the job of the church is to do good deeds. And all that does, if we just did good deeds and didn't preach good news, we would just make Winston-Salem a better place from which to go to hell. And if you think about it, it, it doesn't make sense. Now, we, we believe in all, that we care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. So those are some of the false, there's many more. Those are some of the false gospels in the church. And now let's talk about some of the false gospels in, in, uh, in the culture. And, and, you know, I don't know, as I was thinking about this today, I thought, well, I don't know. Sometimes I'm more tempted to believe the Gospels, gospels of the culture than the Gospels of the church. Let me tell you what the Gospels of the culture are. Um, not as much for Gen Xers and Millennials, more for boomers and uh, builders, but, um, you know, it would have been the American dream. That was the gospel for Americans after World War II. Get married, have two and a half kids, work for GE for 40 years, Increase your vacation, get a good pension, retire early, have a white picket fence. If you did really good, maybe you have a second home. You know, and, and, and some of you, you know, that's like, well, that's what your parents, their whole life was about. Or your grandparents, their whole life was about that. Again, now, is, there, is that all bad? No, not all bad, but you get what I'm saying. People pursue that. Now, what I found is the younger generation doesn't care about those things as so much. They don't want to live in the suburbs. <laughs> they don't want to get married, or they're delaying that. They're not as excited about having kids. They certainly don't want to work for one company for many years. I mean, the average, I can't remember the exact statistics, but it's something like, you know, the average millennial, you know, in the first 10 years of their job has, or first 10 years after college has something like five to seven jobs. Well, what's that about? Well, I don't know what it's all about, but I think it's one of the gospels of, of, uh, of our generation is what's called the self-fulfillment gospel. It's that, and by, by the way, you'll see all the rest of the gospels are all about, um, of America today, are all about the self. The self-fulfillment gospel is, you know, I just want to be happy, right? And that's, and basically it's because that's what your parents told you, and that's what your par- my parents told me. You know, all we want for you is to be healthy and happy. You know, which sounds good, except, you know, it doesn't work across time. 
You know, even, even people, if you say, occasionally, and I've seen this, like occasionally you look at someone, you'll go, well, their life's together. They have, you know, I don't know, a nice family, and they've got, you know, a good amount of money, and they've got a nice, flexible job, and then you talk to them. And all you have to do is, is I don't know, build a relationship and listen, and what you're going to find is most people are dealing with something at, any, at every point in their life. Or if they're not, they're, you know, their aging parents are dealing with something. Or their rebellious child is breaking their heart. And so, you know, and, and actually what's interesting is when they do the studies, you actually don't want to be happy. Like when they ask the right questions, they do the empirical research and all that, you actually don't want to be happy. You just don't want to be in pain and in misery and have extreme anxiety. That's what you don't want, which is different than necessarily wanting to be happy. Now, what the self-fulfillment gospel gets right is, hey, you were meant for more. There is a great joy. It's just not found in yourself or your experience. It's, also, it's immediately found, or ultimately found in God. So that's one gospel. Here's the second gospel, the self-help gospel. Right? And, uh, you know, if you can find a bookstore, they're hard to find anymore. But if you ever go to the internet, or, or the, um, you can go to Amazon, or you can go, uh, if you go to the airport, you ever go to their bookstores, the number one section, the biggest section, the most popular section in any bookstore is the self-help section. Which the one thing the self-help gospel gets right is you need help. Okay? <laughs> and I need help. That's what it, that's what it gets right. Um, but we don't need the self-help, we need the Spirit's help. And actually, this was really interesting. The New York Times wrote an article in August, July or August, there's an article written that they're getting away, and I found this fascinating, they're getting away from the phrase self-help because it's not working and it's got some baggage to it. And they've found that the word self-help, they're kind of realizing this themselves. It's always interesting when the world catches up to what the scripture says that we ultimately can't put ourselves in charge of fully helping ourselves. And so what they've, what, and you've seen this, so they're switching the language from self-help to self-care. So that's become a very popular phrase. And we're not against self-care. You need to take a nap, you need to take care of yourself, you need vacation, you need to rest, you need to learn how to say no, great. Um, but, but what self-care is often, and this article is talking about this, what self-care often is is an excuse to be selfish. And another way to pamper yourself and be all about yourself but have a euphemistic phrase to talk about it. So there's self, the self-help gospel, there's the self-fulfillment gospel, there's the self-discovery gospel. And you notice, I mean, we're just all, we're obsessed with ourselves, right? The self-discovery gospel, we see this with the obsession with personality tests. We're not against personality tests, but what, you know, what, what, the self, what the self-discovery gospel gets right is that we do need to look inside at ourselves. But only to see the problem, not to see the solution. You know, and, and if you ever meet somebody, and I've met many people like this in my life, p- people who are very introspective, who are, who are watching themselves, who are journaling a lot, who are, um, who are, uh, trying to discern their own motives and the why behind what they do. And if you're like that and you're serious about that, you're going to get depressed pretty quickly. Uh, because what you're going to realize is your motives, you're never going to have a pure motive. You know, you're, 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 uh, you're never going to do things perfectly for the right reasons. And, and I say all that to say the self-discovery gospel, it has us look inside, but that's, only the, that's where we find the problem. The solution is outside of us. And then finally, there's the self-esteem gospel. The self-esteem gospel is, well, you know, I, I just need to feel good about myself. It's kind of connected to self-help and everything else. It's, it's also called the therapeutic gospel. It's interesting. They did a study. You may have heard of this. Christian Smith, he did a massive study uh, of uh, high schoolers in America. This was a couple years ago. And uh, what, does, what does the average high schooler in America believe? And he wrote a whole book on it. I forget what the book's called. But there was a phrase that came out of it that they didn't realize would be such a popular phrase. Maybe you've heard of it now. It's a very long phrase. But they said, here's what, here's what high schoolers believe. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. I don't know if you've ever heard of that before. And, the, and it's a beautiful summary that really caught on because here's, they said, here's what, here's what high schoolers believe. Um, God would like me to be a good person 
Now, you know, we kind of have a low view of what a good person is, but he would like me a good per person. Therapeutic, he really wants me to be happy. In deism, he's not very actively involved in my life. He's far away. He's like a lot of dads. He's far away, not involved in my life, would like me to be happy. So that, for average high school, that makes sense of God. And so these are the false gospels that we have to fight against. Now, the false teachers come in, and they share these gospels. Now, when you see a false teacher, you know, I don't know how you think of false teachers, right? But they're not, they're a lot kinder than you might think today. You know, they have the word doctor in front of their name. They have tenure. They're on podcast. Oprah has her on, their show, on her show, right? I'll give you an example. There's a guy named Rob Bell. I don't know if you've ever heard of Rob Bell. Rob Bell, he's very well known. That's why I'm talking about him. He's renounced the faith. He, when I was uh, a freshman in college, he created these videos called NUMA videos. Without, anyway, without getting into too much into this, uh, about, about, about 10 years ago now, he renounced the faith and went on a completely different path. Well, here, the reason I tell you this story is um, I, about five years ago, I was driving in downtown Durham. And uh, I used to live in Durham. And I see this guy that looks exactly like Rob Bell. And I've got to tell you, Rob Bell is like a Christian celebrity. He was wrote books that sold hundreds and hundreds of thousands of copies. Well, I see a guy that looks just like Rob Bell walking down downtown Durham. And I just watch the words come out of my mouth, but I just go, Rob Bell! And I put my window and I yell Rob Bell out. He turns, looks at me, and goes, yes. I go, stay right there. Um, I just, you know, and, and so then I'm, then I'm pulling off, this really happened. I'm pulling off to the side of the road, and as I'm parking my car, I realize I have nothing good to say to this guy. <laughs> But you can't call a guy to stop and then call him a heretic. You know, he ended up, he was walking with his wife. And, uh, and, and um, I found that out in a second. But, but so we, we, uh, I go up to him. But here's the whole point. I go up to walk up to him. And he sees me. He puts a big, he doesn't know who I am. He smiles really big. And he puts his arms out like this to give me a hug. And he gives me this big hug. And, uh, and he starts asking me some questions. And then he asks me if I want free tickets to his event that night. He was doing this, this event at the Carolina Theater in downtown Durham. I tell you all that just to say, what I realized in that moment is he had completely renounced Christ. He had completely renounced the gospel. And he wanted to give me a hug, and he listened to me very carefully, and he was very nice and kind. It wasn't the kind of person I thought it was going to be, if that makes sense. That often what a false teacher will do is they'll just ask a lot of questions but never give you any answers. That's, that's actually a very common strategy, especially for Rob Bell. So let me show you what, what Paul says. If you look with me at verse eight, here's what Paul says about the gospel. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. What Paul's saying here is that the message is more important than the messenger. It's a very humble statement. What he's basically saying is, even if I came back and I told you something different, this message is above me. It's objective, it's fixed, it's that which I submit to. And then he even says this, um, if we or an angel from heaven should preach you a false gospel, I don't know if you ever thought about this, the biggest cult in America, Mormonism, and we can talk more about that, but how did that start? An angel preaches a false gospel to Joseph Smith. How about the, one of the largest world religions, Islam? How does it start? An angel preaches a false gospel to Muhammad. 
It's a false gospel about a false Jesus that's preached by an angel that we were told things like this might happen. And here's what Paul says. As we, verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now I want to talk about that word accursed because it is an intense word. Um, it, it means to let that person, the person who preaches it and the person who believes it, let them be condemned. Now, what that means is that the gospel actually has eternity at stake. This is why Paul was so serious. This is why he's so passionate. Because he really believed that heaven and hell, forgiveness and judgment were at stake in this message. That was, that's what makes, when somebody believes the gospel for the first time and they realize, I have been transferred from darkness to light, from death to life. It is such a sweet message when they realize what God has done in and through them in the power of that message. Well, anyway, what does it mean, he says, that they're condemned? Well, they're not only condemned in, this, in the life to come, they're also condemned in this life. Now, what does that mean? Now, if they believe, they don't have to be condemned anymore, but it's interesting. Tim Keller, and I can't preach a sermon without talking about Tim Keller for at least a few minutes, um, but Tim Keller, he said, it's interesting because there's three emotions or feelings that are connected to being condemned. So, like, there's, I mean, there's probably more than that, but there are three primary emotions that you feel when you are condemned. You feel guilty, you feel anxious, and you feel fearful. And Tim Keller says, is that not how most Americans live their lives? And that actually, if you feel anxious, and there's a lot of reasons, by the way, to be anxious, right? It's like, why are people anxious? Well, and I'm, I'm talking about everyday anxiety. I'm not talking about, you know, clinical anxiety that, I, that, that would be more medical in nature. But why are people anxious? Well, I, well, you know why people are anxious, because they don't know what's going to happen in the future. And what could happen to you in the future? Well, anything. Uh, how about everybody you love? Yeah, anything could happen at any time to any of them. And who knows? And most likely it will. Something will happen to somebody that you know and love. You know, and, so, and then that's why, you know, particularly uh, young families, as soon as they have young kids, they begin to be anxious all the time because their kids are so young and they're so vulnerable. So there's anxiety, there's fear, there's a lot of things to be fearful. That's why the number one command in scripture is do not fear. And there's, a lot, and there's a lot of things that we do that we know that we are guilty. Now, there's two reasons that you might feel guilty. Um, your conscience is too sensitive and it, you're telling yourself you're guilty when you're not, which, is, which that does happen for some people. But most people feel, this may be a new idea, most people feel like they're guilty because they're guilty. You know, guilt is to the soul what pain is to the body. It's telling you that something's wrong. And so what happens is when you believe the real gospel, the true gospel, it is the way that you, I'm not saying you're not going to struggle to a certain extent with guilt and fear and anxiety, but it's you know where to look when you experience those emotions and feelings. Because you can be very, very anxious and say, but I know God holds the future. You can be very, very fearful, but you go, like Carrie did in her video, but I know that God is with me. You can feel very, very guilty and even know that you're very, very guilty, but you know where to look to the cross where Christ has put your sin. And so Paul, and we'll get into this next week, but I want to end by reading verse 10. Paul says in verse 10, it's kind of a bridge. This will lead us into next week where Paul shares more of his life. But Paul talks about the freedom that he has in relationship to men and women and people because of the gospel. He says this, for am I now seeking the approval of man? The answer is clearly no. Or of God. He's, he's looking for the approval of God. He says this, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. 
And I want us to end by praying together that we would be people who fear God more than we fear man because I believe, and we'll see this more in the weeks to come, that what's also often holding us back and hindering us from growing spiritually is the fear of man. It's like, you know, why are you still struggling with that sin? Well, if you could have handled it by yourself, you would have already. The reason you're still struggling is because you haven't told anybody. You haven't let anybody in. You haven't been honest. Some of you need to have hard conversations with your spouses or with your kids or with your friends, and you haven't. Well, why? We know why. Because you fear man. Some of you, you know, you felt the call. I need to share the gospel with my family or my, or my friends or my neighbors or my classmates or my coworkers, and you haven't. And we know why. It's because we fear man. And what the gospel does is it can set us free from anxiety, from fear, and from guilt as we look not in at ourselves, but as we look up and out to Christ and what he's done for us. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name right now. And I, in a room this size, Lord, I just pray for each person, Lord. I don't know what each, one's, each person's dealing with. I don't know the, go- the false gospels that cer- certain families and certain legacies and lineages have believed false gospels for so many generations, Lord. And part of what you do when someone comes to faith in Christ, you break that. You break the power of generational sin and generational false gospels, Lord, and I pray that you would do that. Lord, I pray that we would all look away from ourselves into you. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that believes those two main tenets of the gospel, that we are too sinful to add anything to our salvation at all, and that we are saved totally, completely, and utterly only by placing our faith in Christ. We thank you for that gospel. Let us preach it. Let us protect it. In your name we pray. Amen.